The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been walking through the the book of Exodus, and uh, if you have a Bible, I ask that you turn there with me. Tonight's going to be one of those evenings where it's really good to follow along. A lot of details in the passage that we're going to be reading. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible, uh, and it's on page 62, Exodus 21. Uh, We won't be going all the way up to chapter 23. or through chapter 23, but through most of it. So as I mentioned, we've been walking through uh, the story of Exodus where God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, not simply to set them free from slavery under Pharaoh, but also to fulfill his promise that through Abraham's descendants, the Israelites... Through that people group, God would bless the entire world. And in Exodus 19, at Mount Sinai, God's plan was made very clear that he wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests, meaning a nation that would represent God's righteousness and truth, his justice and merciful rule over his people. And through Israel, God would begin to reverse the curse of sin, causing his blessings to flow as far as that curse of sin had been found. Last time we were together, two weeks ago, Dr. York preached on the Ten Commandments. And these commandments express God's moral character and summarize God's will for his people. Now, Jesus narrowed the focus even more than Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized all the law in just two commandments, saying, the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets, And so what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a a lens, two lenses, like a a pair of corrective, corrective glasses to help us read God's law correctly. And uh, as we go through this list of 52 laws in Exodus 21 through 23, this is going to be really important to keep in mind the lens that Jesus gives us to interpret the law, which is love God and love others as yourself. Now, most likely the reason that we're going to be confused as we're reading through some of these laws tonight is because certain laws, honestly, they seem unfair and unjust by our modern sensibilities. Um, But most likely the reason for that is going to be clarified as as we begin to understand the historical context, the the social context, 
cultural dynamics that made these laws necessary in Israel's time in order to promote justice and mercy. So hopefully by the end of our time together, you might have a hopefully somewhat clearer understanding of how these case laws helped ancient Israel to apply the Ten Commandments to the practical issues that they face in their daily lives. And, and also that hopefully in understanding these underlying principles, we might grow in our ability to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God in the daily challenges we face. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 21. And in this section, we'll see that this long section can be grouped according to five categories of law. The first one is laws limiting slavery. The second, laws related to bodily injury from the extreme of murder at one end to manslaughter, life-threatening injury, criminal, criminal negligence, to corporal punishment that turns abusive at the other end. And then the third section is laws concerning restitution of property. The fourth section, laws uh, for the most vulnerable of society as well as the most offensive. And then the fifth section is spiritual laws ranging from laws about sorcery to idolatry to Sabbaths and festivals. Now, obviously... I'm not going to be able to be exhaustive. My goal this evening is not to be exhaustive, but instructive to clarify confusion regarding some of the most befuddling laws and to show how all God's laws, not just some, are righteous and good despite their initial appearance. And then to identify what we must learn from these laws and apply them to our context. So, So we're going to start with the most challenging, the the laws regarding slavery. I plan to spend the majority of my time getting into the details of these first two laws, the laws regarding slavery and bodily injury. And then um, I'm just going to breeze through the second three categories and, and really just give you hints so that, you know, when you go and study these passages on your own, these hints are helpful in your own personal study. So let's start with the most challenging, the laws of slavery. Look at verse 1. Now these are the laws that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Now it's not surprising to us that one of the earliest applications of the Ten Commandments addresses the issue of slavery because Israel had been a slave uh, for over 400 years in Egypt. But what is surprising is that God does not simply abolish slavery altogether. He assumes that some form of servitude will continue, but he provides safeguards to protect the welfare and the dignity of those who serve. Now, this approach to some systemic sins in culture like the sins of slavery and polygamy and, and divorce, this, this approach is, is consistent throughout Scripture where God never defends these things. He's not defending slavery or polygamy or, or divorce as something he wants. These issues reflect deep human brokenness, yet these systemic cultural sins, well, they're like scrambled eggs and sometimes... Life gets so messy, you can't unscramble what has been broken. And if you try, 
you may cause the innocent victims, the, the most vulnerable in society, additional pain and suffering. Those are the ones that usually suffer the most. And so scripture provides safeguards and institutes regulations which will cause such systemic sin to eventually and ultimately disappear. And this slower, softer approach may be hard for us to understand, especially when we consider America's ugly history with slavery and how people often use the Bible to defend the enslavement of blacks in the South. But as we'll see in this passage, and as I've been reading through a commentary by Dr. Phil Riken, it's an excellent commentary highlighting the crucial differences between American slavery and the type of slavery practiced in Israel. There are three things that the text points out here. First, Hebrew slavery was voluntary, temporary, and families were protected. Look at this. First, this slavery is voluntary. People hired themselves into the service of others, usually because they were poor. And it was the best way to sustain themselves and pay off their debt. They lived as hired hands or indentured laborers in exchange for room and board and and an honest wage. In fact, involuntary slavery was forbidden. If you skip down to verse 15 in chapter 21, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So this clearly rules out the slave trade as as practiced in Africa and the West. But not only was slavery voluntary, slavery was temporary. Verse 2, we just had read it, makes it clear that it was not to last more than six years. In the seventh year, the slave was to go free. So far from being a permanent status that locked future generations in poverty, slavery was actually a means of paying off debt, getting out of poverty, learning marketable skills, and setting yourself up for a brighter future one marked by freedom and independence. So slavery was temporary. Third, slave families were protected. Unlike slavery in America, which had devastating effects on black families, the Bible's regulations preserved marriages and families. Look at it in verse 3 as we continue through the text. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. You are not permitted to separate families. Now things got a little more complicated when a man who was in servitude married another woman in servitude during their years of slavery. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now certainly there's a huge risk a man took when he did not choose to wait to marry and have kids until both he and his beloved were freed, which would have been a maximum waiting period of six years. But in such cases, the law allowed slaves to choose to stay if they bound themselves to their master indefinitely. Now, the text here says forever, but this most likely refers to forever from the perspective of the man having his ear pierced voluntarily, meaning for the rest of his life, but not the rest of his children's life. See, even in the worst of circumstances, this type of slavery was not generational. Why? 
Well, because of the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, everyone's debt was canceled. Whatever land they lost, whatever debts they had accumulated, they were forgiven and returned to their land and set free. So here again is where the lens that Jesus gives us through which we should interpret all the law and the prophets, that the law is about loving God and loving others as yourself. Here's where this comes in helpful. And if we use Jesus' lens to rightly summarize this law, we must consider how this law may have actually protected women and children. Phil Riken explains it this way. He says, remember that the husband and father in this case was a former debtor. And if his servitude had served its purpose, he was now ready to become a, pro, uh, a productive member of the covenant community. Soon he would be able to buy his family's freedom and they would all be united under one roof, his roof. But if he failed to learn his lesson, he would soon be back in debt, and this time his wife and children would also have to suffer the consequences. They were still family, but the woman and her children would remain in the master's household until their husband and father could take full responsibility for them in a God-honoring way. Now, the law was written out of love, to protect the rights of these Hebrew servants. And while we don't know all the historical details that we would like, we can discern a benevolent and protective purpose in these laws. And we see it again in the next verses, verses 7 through 11, with the special laws regarding female slaves. Look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. And if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, modern readers like myself often see this as, as at best, a a mixture of, of very disturbing regulations with some acceptable limitations. But that's only because, well, I don't really quite understand the historical context, but when you do, you begin to discover a common reason a father would sell his daughter to a rich man. And it wasn't because he was unloving and wicked, In fact, it was just the opposite. And this law actually regulates a common practice, practiced throughout the world for thousands of years and still today, of of arranged marriages. Now, while most of us find that sort of silly and ridiculous, actually, now that I'm a father with five kids, it's kind of growing on me. Uh, I kind of like it. I think uh, it's a good idea. (laughs) But anyway, a, a poor father would want to set his daughter up for a better life. So he would enter into such an arrangement in hopes that his daughter would become a permanent part of a higher status family and thus have a better life than he could otherwise provide for her. And verses 9 and 10 clarify this. It says, if he, in verse 9, the master designates her for his son, he shall deal with her not as a slave but as a daughter, as a daughter-in-law. And in verse 10, if the master receives her for himself as a wife, 
But then, as rich man often did, takes another wife. Well, he, he can't diminish her food, her clothing, her marital rights. And if he does any of those things, then she's free and no longer under in his service. See, certainly this law prevented the rich from using their status and power to take advantage of of the vulnerable, poor fathers and their beautiful daughters. See, should a rich person make promises he had no intention of keeping and she didn't become part of his family, the rich man had to allow her father the opportunity to redeem her back so that she could be in a home where she was loved and cherished and wanted. And the rich man could not sell her to a foreigner. And if he failed to care for her, she was allowed to go free. See, these laws offered unique freedoms and protections for women in ancient times and for the poor who were indebted. These laws are totally different from the surrounding culture. No other culture offered women such status and such protection. Other cultures didn't guarantee the poor the same rights as the rich. Only those who had property had rights. But here in the Bible, we see God values each and every one of his children made in his image. So in summary, the crucial differences between God's law and man's law couldn't be more different. American slavery and this type of slavery practice in in Israel is just very different. Now, obviously, the the cultural context is, is strange to us, but issues of poverty and wealth are not strange to us. Issues of vulnerability and oppression are not strange to us. Issues of hoping for a brighter future for our kids and taking risky steps to ensure it are not strange to us. These are all familiar. So what applications can we derive from these Hebrew slavery laws in our day? Well, let me share four. We have a very different socioeconomic culture, but we have employers and employees. And We can see from here the heart of God's law. Employers should never exploit their workers, but should guarantee them sufficient wages and rest. Employers should seek to promote their workers' welfare, not just their job fare, and help them to realize a better future, give them training, education, retirement planning, to set them up to have a free and independent future. Second, People in debt, the poor, should be given the opportunity to pay it back in a context where they can learn skills, live safely, and learn how to become responsible and independent citizens. Debtors should not be given handouts. Rather, they should be allowed to participate in their own financial development as partners with those who have the resources to help them. Now, as we consider ways to alleviate poverty... Honestly, we need to humble ourselves as we become before God's word, especially when we remember that the Bible's normative process for bringing someone out of poverty and restoring them to responsible independence only took seven years. When we look at what the last 65 years of international aid and domestic welfare have been able to accomplish through aid programs and relief approaches... We should stand humble, for often our efforts have too often merely exacerbated the problems rather than solved them. See, people in debt should be given the opportunity and be given partnerships, not just handouts. And that's really what this master-slave relationship 
describes in the Old Testament. Third, families should always be considered. Family connections and family concerns. Family members should not be permanently separated except in extreme cases and only if the most vulnerable members, usually children and women, would suffer real additional danger and harm by staying with a particular parent or spouse. Now, thankfully, our own adoption laws in Pennsylvania, who have been fought for by wise Christians that know the Scripture, reflect this principle very well. And I'm proud of how this church is standing by refugee women here in America who are separated from their husbands, who are waiting in camps over in Africa for their chance at a better life here, waiting for their visa. And so we have members of this church doing all they can to not just preach the gospel to them and not just give financial handouts, but to teach them how to drive, how to learn English, how to read, how to navigate the health system. This is a costly thing, but it is beautiful, and it reflects exactly what the Scripture's teaching here. And it makes me a proud member of this church to see my brothers and sisters do such great work. The fourth, we must remember not just these practical applications, but a gospel application. See, Luke 24 reminds us that all the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Even these laws concerning slavery point to Jesus. And we must remember that Jesus left his throne above and came to serve, not to be served. And as Philippians 2 reminds us, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus literally became a slave to redeem his bride, who was a slave to sin. See, and we are called to have the same mind of Christ, giving up our rights to serve others, to help them overcome their problems and to help them become all that God wants them to become. This is our call as the body of Christ. Now, I told you I'd spend most of my time on slavery, but after dealing with the issues of slavery, the text continues by dealing with issues about bodily injury from premeditated murder all the way down to losing a tooth because someone punches you. If you look at verse 12, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Notice first there's a distinction made between premeditated murder and manslaughter and violent acts of passion. And, and our modern law today traces back these important distinctions. They're self-explanatory, so I'm not going to spend much time. We're going to move on to verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. Now, we've already addressed verse 16 about slavery, you know, Calling man-stealing and human trafficking into slavery a capital offense, that, that definitely matches our own modern sensibilities. But these laws regarding parents seem a bit extreme and unmeasured, quite honestly. 
So how do we make sense of this law? First, we must recognize that the law is placed in the context of murder and manslaughter and life-threatening injury. Both That's what's talked before, and that's what's talked about afterwards. So this is a good indication that Moses is not referring to a teenager talking back or cursing out loud. Teenagers rest. But it's actually dealing with aggressive assault and criminal negligence. The Hebrew word naka carries a far more vicious meaning than to strike. It's more along the lines of attempted murder. Now, ordinarily, attempted murder only carried the death penalty if it was successful. But because the assault violates the fifth commandment to honor father and mother, such a person deserved to die. And note the equality of treatment regarding women. Both mothers and fathers could not be treated this way. Likewise, the cursing of mother and father refers not to a single act of disrespect, but to criminal negligence of mother and father. In other words, a total repudiation that fails to care for parents in their need in old age, which was often quite desperate in that culture, desperate need. Jesus clarified this meaning when he challenged the Pharisees in the gospel, saying, God commanded that whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's equating cursing father and mother with criminal neglect, refusing to financially care for parents in old age. And in that culture, that resulted in extreme suffering, most likely premature death, which is why it was a capital offense. See, again, Jesus helps us see how all God's laws are just and merciful and compassionate. They, they are measured and balanced They're not over the top like we might naively assume on a first reading. Continuing with the topic of capital offenses of murder and manslaughter, we pick up in verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, And shall have him thoroughly healed. See, crimes of passion necessitated that the perpetrator had to pay the victim's workman's compensation. As well as his medical bills. The Bible was truly ahead of its day. Reading on to verse 20 to 27. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child, children, come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Notice again the equity given to men and women, utterly unique in that day, let alone in many places in our world today. Now, the regulations in verses 20 and 21 assume a master had a right to administer corporal punishment or discipline 
A slave that refused to listen could be beaten. However, in verses 26 and 27, it shows the master was not allowed to injure the slave in any way. If he hurt so much as his eye or damaged his tooth and knocked it out, the slave was allowed to go free. If the slave died, the master was guilty of murder. If the slave lived, there was no need for compensation because it was assumed the master was already responsible for the compensation and medical care. See, this passage shows that not only were slaves treated with equal dignity under the law, but so were unborn children. Unfortunately, in our own, quote, advanced civilization, as we like to call ourselves, we offer fewer protections to this group of people, preborn babies. To summarize, this passage clarifies that deliberate acts of violence deserve capital punishment, such acts as murder, whether the person being killed was slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, man-stealing and selling into slavery, as well as attempted murder and criminal neglect of vulnerably aging parents were all deserving of capital punishment. But it also lays out the restitution required for bodily injury for cases where such injury was accidental as well as for cases where bodily injury was intentional. Now, before moving on to property damage, the law addresses one more form of negligence when it comes to bodily injury, which is this. What should be done when people get bodily hurt or die because someone else was careless? Now, time prevents me from reading verses 28 through 31 in this same chapter, but These cases show us that people should be held responsible not only for bodily injuries they have caused, but for bodily injuries they could have prevented. In their case, letting out a known aggressive animal who gored an Israelite. In our case, probably texting while driving. The text moves on to a third category of laws regarding restitution of property. I'm not going to be able to go into detail here, but I do want to give you helpful hints that will guide you in your own personal study, and I I encourage you. These are wonderful passages to study. The section deals with how to make restitution for property that is lost, borrowed, or stolen. Lost, whether it was due to negligence or not, borrowed, and while being borrowed was damaged, Or stolen. And and as you read through it, let me summarize some important points that will help you as you study this section. Number one, perpetrators of theft are to pay punitive damages. Simply giving back what they stole is not sufficient because it doesn't cost the thief anything. So, you know, if a thief, for example, was able to return what they stole, their payment was double. In other words, whatever they tried to profit, that exact amount they should count as loss. However, if they were unable to return what they stole because they ruined it, broke it, or sold it, then they had to pay back four or five times the amount of their crime because it was more grievous. We also see in these laws of property restitution that we're called to hold people responsible for property damage due to negligence, that God expects us to take full responsibility to restore any damage we do to another person's property, whether it's done on purpose or by accident. Sorry, kids, but if you're borrowing something that is your friend's, and while borrowing it, you break it, you bought it. (laughs) That is just. 
Um, now, as, as we go through, and if you read the laws, you know, they're strange to us because we live in a non-agrarian culture, but the principles are wise and true. They're relevant and profitable for us today, you know, as we deal about our own squabbles over property. The fourth set of laws express laws that loosely can be categorized as justice for all, justice for the most vulnerable, and this is in... Um, Chapter 22, verse 16 through chapter 23, verse 9. Justice for the most vulnerable as well as justice for the most offensive to God. And then also justice for the most offensive to you. (laughs) Maybe not to God, but to you because they're your personal enemy. And so these give regulations for dealing with these three categories of of people. For example, what restitution should be given to a young, naive girl when she's seduced by an adult man? Scriptures gives us principles. What restrictions must be placed on lending practices to the poor? What, what kind of care must we show widows, orphans, and sojourners because they do not possess the land or capital to support themselves? Specifically, as you go through, you'll see a principle that God's people were responsible to provide productive opportunities for the poor by granting them rights to glean off the land. They also had special rights when being lent to. That when you were lending to someone who was poor, you were, you were not allowed to lend them money with interest. And when they gave collateral for their loan, you had to return that collateral even before the loan was paid off since they might really need that collateral for their own safety and health. And, and you were to give, no matter... Who they were, rich or poor, you, you had to give people regular rest on the Sabbath. That wasn't something that just the rich deserved. So you see regulations for the most vulnerable. And then the text also gives regulations for how to deal with the most offensive, sexual predators, those engaged in sexual perversions like bestiality, also idolaters and sorcerers, which are also linked to sexual perversions and temple prostitution and such. But then lastly, it clarifies how you must treat people just offensive to you. Maybe not offensive to God, but, but someone you just don't get along with, a personal enemy that remains offensive to you. Such people were to be treated with kindness and mercy. Look at chapter 23, verse 5. Simple things like this. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. These echo the very words of Jesus who explained the law. You've heard that it would say, you know, love your friends, hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love those who hate you. Lastly, this section closes with laws about keeping God's festivals. In chapter 23, verse 14, he says, Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. These were religious festivals. Verse 15, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, which was a celebration and a reminder of all that God had done to free them from slavery in Egypt. Verse 16, you shall keep the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. This was a feast to encourage one another to trust in God by faith that he is good and and we do what we can, but he's going to bring in the yield. And then a third feast of ingathering at the end of the year, which was a feast of thanksgiving for what God had provided. And then he ends this section with a seemingly out-of-nowhere, weird, strange command. In chapter 23, verse 19, it just kind of pops out. 
And it says this, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And up to this point, you're reading through all these laws and you're like, okay, these are practical. This deals with property rights and this deals with limitations on slavery. But what's this about uh, not boiling a goat in its mother's milk? But if we've been listening to God's law carefully, we should understand exactly what this proverb means. Whatever the case may be, laws about bodily injury, borrowing property, or the Sabbath, in every case, we must remember the intention of these laws was not to give loopholes so that one group of people could use it against another group of people, to exert their power, to exert their status at the cost of another. Each law, rightly interpreted, was to reflect God's character, his glory, his goodness, his steadfast love, his justice and mercy. And so when rightly used, these laws serve as a precedent that will nurture Israel and give life to its community and will help them mature into more and more godliness and to begin to experience shalom, the peace that they had lost in the garden through sin would be restored to them. And yet God knows the heart of man. Self-righteous man will seek ways to find loopholes in the law or to lord it over others litigiously while conveniently finding exceptions for themselves. And such self-serving applications usually made because powerful people had the time and resources to do it tended to damage the young, the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable most negatively. And so while Jews, you know, and and I mean this humbly, but while our our Jewish brothers tend to interpret this law hyper-literally developing kosher laws prohibiting eating meat and dairy together, this law in context, and and that grieves me because you miss the the main meaning of of the law, this law in context has a proverbial meaning It warns us that while the law can be used beneficially and is intended to be used beneficially, it can also be applied abusively. The warning is do not let these principles, all 52 of these case laws, these precepts that I'm laying out, do not let them be twisted and used for selfish gain to give the powerful advantage over the weak. He says, be very careful not to do that. Don't take something pure and nutritious like these case laws, which are like a mother's milk, and use them to cook to death the young and the naive, like a goat in its mother's milk. See, my sons and daughters, they're still learning my ways, and this law is meant for their good to nurture them in my ways and to bring shalom. And that's the true meaning. Let us not miss this metaphor for reality and let us not miss the intent of these laws if you're confused by the laws remember they're meant to give life so wrestle through the laws wrestle through the historical context until you see the heart of God because Jesus gives you great confidence to put on the lenses to interpret these laws and every single one of them is good and every single one of them reflects a love for God and a call to love others as ourselves let us pray God, there is so much here, and we cannot be exhaustive, but God, in your mercy, please let this time together be instructive to show us how all of your law, not just some of them, are good, and they're right, and they're true, 
And I pray that as we study them and learn from them, that we might discover how to apply their principles wisely in our context so that we may know better how to do justice, how to love mercy, and how to walk humbly with our own God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.